Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Thank you so much for coming. Um, in this occasion, I can very happily speak a little to Reo. So, um, <laughs> kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou, tēnā koutou katoa, no mai harimai whakatou mai, ki nā te whānau whanui o te whare toinei, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou, tēnā koutou katoa. What I've just said is welcome, welcome, welcome. In Te Reo Māori, there's a lot of repetition. Uh, and I've said welcome to this art house. Uh, thank you for those who have come from near and far. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, so after 12 years in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, it's a bicultural country. And in every occasion that has a sense of formality, uh, there is always Te Reo spoken. In fact, I was there three weeks ago for the opening of a beautiful project by two uh, uh, Filipino-Australian artists, Alfredo and Isabel Akalizan, who have actually shown here um, uh, for the biennial a long time ago, a beautiful project that I've worked for uh, a year with them. And we not only had, of course, our um, Maori blessing, but also some beautiful waiata was sung uh, amongst the group that was there. So, um, and uh, always those protocols are very beautifully articulated in New Zealand. So um, it's a tremendous pleasure to speak about, uh, as, an, as an excuse really, to, to focus in on Colin McCann. Uh, this is a terrific Colin McCann. When I came for my interview, um, well before I was appointed, I really enjoyed my walk through the gallery and I was you know, blown away by my encountering Barbara Hepworth soon as entering the gallery and you know, the, the quality and the depth of the collection. But I was blown away in this space to see this combination of uh, Yayo Kasama and Colin McCann. And in many ways, it brings together uh, the two really strong trajectories in my, for my life to this point, which is working with um, contemporary, uh, contemporary Asian art and particularly Kasama. I've worked with Kasama. I had to decide, do I talk about Kasama or McCann today? Because I'm, I'm um, equally besotted by Kasama. Um, but, uh, but the combination is completely radical. I've, nowhere in the world would a Colin McCann and a Yayo Kusama be placed together except perhaps in New Zealand, uh, which, uh, and I've certainly worked with Kusama um, about three years ago for a big project in, in Auckland. But uh, this is a sensational McCann. Uh, so terrifically uh, fortunate to have this work in the collection in this great room about afterlife. You know, AESNF, the Chapman Brothers, Rodan, of course, uh, but, and Sean Scully, um, but to, to have this combination, it does feel a little squeezed in this corner, I have to say. I'm used to seeing McCann's with a lot of real estate around them, uh, particularly a work of such gravitas. But uh, what I'm going to do is, um, if I'll, I'll talk for about, um, you know, 25 minutes or so, and then very happy to ask any questions. Um, I'll just show you a picture of Colin. Uh, the reason that I decided to go with Makan rather than uh, Kusama is that this marks to, this year marks 100 years since his birth, and there is a lot of attention happening across New Zealand on Makan. What we decided to do, could you just hold that? Yeah. 
What we decided to do at Auckland Art Gallery, given it has the largest holdings of Macan, is not do a large solo Macan project, but have a constellation of, of different insights and perspectives. Because whether you be a historical curator, contemporary curator, an artist, everybody has a different take on Macan because he, he was a landscape artist, he was an, he was an absolute pioneer, abstract, abstract artist, uh, he worked with text, he, was, he defined uh, the, uh, the, the 20th century, he's he, um, in New Zealand art, he's probably the most well-known artist uh, from New Zealand, although Len Lai would give him a run for his money on occasions, and Rita Angus was pretty darn good. So, uh, and, and of course, Simon Denny, in a contemporary sense, is, is very well known as well. So, uh, but what we decided at Auckland Art Gallery is a whole series, because the collection is so vast, you know, uh, nearly 300 works, how, how you, so many different stories could be told. There's a whole story about his religious paintings. There's a whole story about his relationship with Canterbury, the Canterbury Plains and landscape. And there's a whole story about radical abstraction, which is, if you were to choose one, I, I firmly believe this is the area to choose, and I think, again, the gallery is super fortunate. This actually, this work in particular, and I'll come back to that, because there's so many great stories to tell about Macan, but one of the stories, this, this in particular brings two really strong trajectories in his practice. One is his paintings drawn from the stories of the Bible. Now, this is very interesting, because um, for, for some people, because there's such a whole strong trajectory of his practice that is concerned with, with biblical stories, it may alienate some members of the audience. But at the same time, he was a very, very intriguing character. He was never a member of a church. And yet there is this profound religiosity and spiritualism in his work and also a great attraction for him and a great source of reference being the stories of the Bible. So if, if it's a very, his relationship with religion um, and with Christianity in particular is very interesting. And here, these two strands of, and thematics in his work come together. Um, and this work is called The Five Wounds of Christ, number two. But he also brings together another very interesting trajectory of abstraction in his work. This is a plan of his room. It's very simple. There's the doorway on the right, there's the table, there's his bed up the top. And there's a whole series of paintings that he did where he was exploring, particularly after his trip to America, exploring abstraction and looking, re reducing, paring back his, his source to the most immediate uh, phenomenological experience and that was simply the room around him. But this is a very interesting painting because it brings those two thematics together. Um, this is the guy, okay, he died in 87, born in 19, um, in uh, 1919. So, um, and can you kind of, it's a bit hard to see, but you can, yep, see it a little. But I'm going to jump to a very interesting story and that is the story 
Okay, if you could hold it up for me, Robin. Yep. Um, and that's the story of the Urawira mural. Does anybody know the story of the Urawira mural? Would you like to? Oh, we've got our New Zealander in the room. <laughs> so, um, can you tell us? Um, in 1976, um, Colin McCann painted this astonishing mural, the Urawira mural, for the Tuhoi tribe in the north. Okay, this is a very beautiful, tough landscape. And the Tuhoi people are famous for being, um, uh, they never signed the Treaty of Waitangi, they be, being, being ferociously independent. Colin McCann have very strong affinities with, with Maoridom and particularly with Tuhoi and he produced this mural for the visitors centre, for, for um, a centre in, um, up in the Urawiras. Very tough area to get to as well, but it, as I said, very beautiful. And here it brings in um, his re religiosity with this uh, image of an eye, and also this would have been a kauri, uh, uh, what's in Australia now known as kauri, but these beautiful trees. And then the text, Tuhoi. And there's um, Maori text, uh, the, the mountain of Tuhoi. Monga is mountain. So, um, so you've got this, um, you've got this amazing icon. There's no question; it's an icon representing Tuhoi people. Uh, as I said, Tuhoi are pretty staunch, and in the um, 80s, I think it was 87, um, it was stolen. It was kidnapped in the dead of night, and it was hidden. And there was no ransom, but it was a political act. And uh, and what was really interesting is why I'm starting with this story is the power that this artist has for Māori, for Pākehā, for non-Māori and for Māori in New Zealand. Okay, so he's a national icon. He's kind of like Sidney Nolan, Blackman, Whiteley, you know, Heisen all kind of rolled into one in terms of the national identity, both for Pākehā and for Māori. So this was a very, very uh, tumultuous, it goes down as one of the kind of the great art crimes of the world in terms, you know, there's been books written. In fact, art crime is a big topic in New Zealand. Yes? Um, it was a visitor centre, it was very, um, yes, it was, um, no, it wasn't painted, it was a canvas. Um, and, um, and so it, uh, it, and there wasn't a lot of protection. I mean, it was worth at the time about a million dollars, which was a lot. Um, it's now worth a lot more than that. But um, 15 months later, um, uh, another Tuhoi elder, uh, Tama Iti, who has actually been in, in prison for his, um, his resistance, um, he is an artist as well, a really amazing um, poet and writer as well, and theatre director. Uh, he negotiated with a woman called Dame Jenny Gibbs. And when I was in Auckland three weeks ago for Eichelizans, I was staying at her house. And so I've heard the story of how this came to being. So she ended up being, um, and this is all documented, she undertook, being a great arts patron and a great friend of Māori, she undertook to uh, approach Tuhoi and she knew Tama Iti. I, I think she didn't know him very well, but through this process they became incredibly close friends. 
over a period of many months to negotiate the return of the work. And that meant her being blindfolded and taken in the dead of night to where the painting had been stored. So um, it was it was reasonably damaged. So it did, there was quite a lot of restoration that had to be made on that work. And then the work was returned to uh, to the visitor centre in the Uruwiras. Um, so it's it's a great powerful story about biculturalism and also a, a very interesting, um, I think, you know, exemplar of the importance of this artist and his place in New Zealand culture. Okay, so that's why I wanted to start with that story. Um, any questions about that? Or did you want to add anything to that? Correct. He was one of the first people. A, a full face moku, which is the tattoo, is um, was was reasonably common um, uh, historically. But in recent times, Tamaiti is one of the very first people to uh, um, activate the tradition in a in a new way in the 20th century. Um, the difference being historical tattooing is done with chisels, um, and it's it's quite a sort of uh, bloody process, literally. Um, but of course, contemporary tattooing is, is with, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, the tattooing technique, whatever, I don't have a tattoo, so I don't know. But ink and, and, and you know, nasty tools. But um, not nearly as traumatic as what would have been. Literally, it was a carving into the, the face um, in traditional um, Maori tattoo. Okay, so I wanted to start with that just because that gives you a sense of the importance of this artist in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, now I'm going to go back in time. And if, let me hold that. Okay. And we're going to go, yeah, oh, this one is, this one's beautiful. Takata Night and Day. This is in the, the um, Auckland Art Gallery's collection. A beautiful painting. Um, from the South Island, large painting uh, showing the Otago Hills, almost sort of anamorphic, almost like uh, a body, uh, the way he's looking at landscape. Now, um, as I said, he was born um, 1919 um, and he grew up, um, he, was, he was born in the South Island in Timaru in the Otago Plains. And, um, and then he, at, he knew at 14 he wanted to be an artist, which was very unusual then because there wasn't a lot of art schools around and there wasn't a lot of uh, career guidance counsellors advising to move into the arts. But his grandfather was a photographer and um, that obviously had some sort of... His maternal grandfather, photographer and painter, William Ferrier, so he did have some kind of familial experience of what an artist was. So he, he certainly um, did some training in Otago and he married, and I think this is very important, um, a terrific painter called um, Anne Hamlet, who he studied with, and that made a very big, um, come through, um, that made a very big difference to him because he did have four children with her, two girls and two boys, but he had an artist in the house and she was tremendously important for him 
in terms of his practice, encouraging him, working with him. In fact, they created children's books together and, uh, and illustrated and wrote them. So she's a, a, a wonderful woman, Anne. And um, in fact, recently, there was a, a major exhibition at Tatui Gallery in, outside of Auckland of her work. Um, and she was somebody that really could have become much, much more... Uh, um, influential as a painter has she not been married to this kind of crazy guy. We'll get to that. Um, so he, the four children, um, he basically picked fruit and was a was an itinerant worker trying to, you know, that's how he made, because as, a, as an artist that wasn't really possible um, to make a living. So life was very, very, uh, you know, very tough and of course she was supporting him in his practice and and she really believed in him um what marked a really and you can see a lot of these other you know um it's more of the the religious the religious paintings and almost sort of almost cartoon-esque he he felt very strongly against fascism he was overridingly he was a spiritualist and overridingly he was a pacifist so he was very against fascism and he immediately signed up even though he's a pacifist to join the war effort however he was rejected because of an enlarged heart which you know given who he was that doesn't make it makes sense to have such such emotion but um he was rejected and so he um he continued painting but after the war he was very traumatized by what happened during the war and immediately after the war he he was he started his very um this whole body of work looking at religious images and you can see the kind of imagery he was he was working with at the time um so um, then something very interesting happened. He'd been talking quite a lot with uh, certain people in Auckland because Auckland Art Gallery was has always really been the kind of the, the, the foremost, the biggest collection um, in in the country, and um, and there was some really good people at the gallery at the time, and he, I'll just one of these. Um, also, I'm just going to show you another couple of these beautiful abstractions from the South Island that he painted much later in life, thinking back of the Otago landscape and, and Canterbury as well. But, you know, incredibly strong and spare kind of, um, kind of abstraction. Okay, and this side over here. Oh, oh, good. Oh, very good. Oh, Robin's my beautiful assistant. Um, so it was an that landscape where he was born was part of very much part of his soul, um, and he came back to that imagery again and again. Then something interesting happened. He was in conversation um, very loosely with the Auckland Art Gallery, and I think that the director at the time said, "I'll oh, come up. Let's see if we can find a job for you." So he bundled up his wife and four children and arrived in Auckland without a position at all, um, and um, which was a, a little demanding for the family. Um, but very soon, he was employed uh, as a preparator. Um, and this is often the case in art galleries where artists come and work on the install team. It's exactly the same here now. And um, sometimes, and in two cases, which I'll get to in a minute, um, those people become very powerful and very important and influential within the galleries themselves. So within 
four years, he was deputy director. So he started as an installer and cleaner, and within four years, he was deputy director. So he was phenomenally intelligent, um, energetic. Um, he really knew art. He was always looking. Um, he was, he was um, definitely a leader within the art community. And they had a little tiny house in a lovely suburb called Titarangi, where Tetui um, is now, which means the west wind. Um, if you go to Auckland, you must go to Tatui. It's a beautiful little gallery. And um, it's not flipping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Must be off-rotate. But, um, and he, it's in the kauri trees. So he's in this tiny house. My God, the house is so tiny. Honestly, the bedrooms are about the size of these Chapman boxes. And uh, the kids literally slept underneath dirt floor Hessian to the hills. And this is not... Adelaide's Mediterranean climate. You know, it rains every day in Auckland and it was quite miserable for those kids. So they were living there in this tiny, tiny house and, um, and, and that's identical. To, that is the view outside the window. It is now a little museum and if you go there, you must go. It's incredible because it's all been restored um, and it's a, it's a beautiful, sensitive restoration and it's now an artist residency. So McCann, McCann House Residency, um, they've just opened it out for international artists but to date it's only been for New Zealand artists who stay in this beautiful house, a new house, um, next door to the museum and have a very large studio, which is about half the size of this room, to work in for three months. It's a terrific residency. Um, so he started these amazing paintings and during his time there, where he went overseas to acquire art for the um, Auckland Art Gallery, he saw for the very first time, because you've got to remember, this is the 70s, and, um, uh, sorry, this is earlier, this is the, the, um, the 50s, 53 he came to Auckland and 56 um, uh, he began at the gallery. So it was still a couple of years in pretty well destitute before he started actually working there. Um, and, um, and in 58, two years after he started working at the gallery, he represented the gallery in America. And for the very first time, he was seeing... Jikes and Pollock and, um, and uh, all of the abstract expressionists and, uh, and also conceptual, conceptual sculptors as well, Alan Capro, and it had a massive effect on him because until that time in the 50s, the only thing he'd ever seen is, you know, in art international images in black and white. There wasn't even any colour images at that time. So he, for the very first time, was seeing these astonishing, you know, Frankenthaler and, and, and Pollock and others, um, Rothko for the first time. And these artists were, were living artists working hard at the time. And he, he said some really beautiful things about, for the first time, he'd encountered work that you could walk into, that you could inhabit, that inhabited you. So it really shifted his practice and he became much bolder and much stronger um, in response to these um, American abstractionists. Um, so that was in the 50s. Uh, pretty soon after, in 1960, so two years later, he um, left, the, in 64, he then left the Auckland Art Gallery and became a lecturer at 
Elam, the school of, um, school of Art. So then he had a tremendous influence on a whole group of artists who studied with him. So he went from working at the gallery. The other thing is there was no sense of conflict of interest for, I know we've got a lot of staff here today. There seemed to be no problem at all that he was the deputy director curating exhibitions that included himself, also acquiring his own work for the collection. And of course he had a little studio up in the attic. <laughs> which is exactly the same as Don Driver at Gavette, Bruce, Gavette Brewster down in New Plymouth. So there was no problem at the time. What I find fascinating in the last project I was um, organising before I left Auckland Art Gallery was an exhibition of Tony Tuxen and Colin McCann. Because Tony Tuxen, at exactly the same time, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, was looking at Aboriginal and Melanesian work. He was acquiring work from Papua New Guinea. He was deputy director. His work was coming into the collection not so boldly because he only ever had two exhibitions in his life, not unlike McCann, who was exhibited prolifically. But these two men, working at the same time, profoundly influential artists, but also deputy directors, I still think it would be a knockout show because they were both working with abstraction and both working with, with um, a level of spirituality and both had very um, enormous empathy for Indigenous art, contemporary Indigenous art and, and, um, and philosophy in their, in their, in their countries. So there's a, there's a really interesting parallel there. Okay, so... Um, then, okay, that's probably, you might remember, he was an artist of great controversy. You might have remembered this. Does anybody recognise that and the story associated with that? Can you tell us? Don't know the story, but you recognise the work. Okay. Um, National Gallery of Australia, as a gift from the New Zealand government, was given this amazing work by Colin McCann. And essentially, Australia didn't want it. <laughs> so it was considered this kind of the greatest gift that New Zealand could give Australia was a Colin Khan. And Australia at the time, just uh, the Australian government were going, oh, thanks, great. You know, those presents that you put under the bed? Well, it was a bit like that. Um, now, of course, you go to NGA and it's never off display because it's recognised as one of his, his great masterworks. And, um, and uh, it, it really sums up uh, his approach to how he used biblical texts, but also the sense of um, identity and... Um, uh, and this is a much, much... In fact, it is pretty well stolen for the Auckland Museum's um, graphic identity. Auckland Museum, they've used his typeface. There is a Colin McCann typeface. You'll see this sort of imagery um, uh, infiltrating throughout New Zealand in many, many ways. Okay, so, um, so that was a bit of a controversy. Um, but then I'll just show you... But you can see the level... This is a beautiful, a beautiful work as well, you know, and and this would have this would have been the late seventies, um, and you can see this level of of his, the the boldest. You can see in the top right corner exactly what we've got here. So he's bringing in that element of the architecture as well as the uh, the poeticism um, of of biblical texts. Um, the and so. Then he left, so he was at, um, so he was teaching at Auckland City Gallery for a few years and had a powerful effect on a whole generation of artists. 
and then in 71, so he was there for about six years, um, and then in 71 he left Elam to paint full time. And then around that time there was big retrospectives uh, and uh, those ex many of those exhibitions toured the country. Um, now, what then another very in fascinating incident happened in 84. I bet you'll know. Oh, you don't know? Oh, I bet you do. <laughs> it was a very fascinating in incident. He, at this time, very recognised internationally. René Bloch had discovered his work. Robert Storr had discovered his work. There was articles in Art Forum. He was seen as the great New Zealand artist on the global stage. He was really picking up traction internationally and throughout New Zealand. And... Um, and he was selected for the Biennial of the 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 Biennial of Sydney. So this is in '84. At this time, I said he was a pretty um, intense man. He was alcoholic and had various other complications medically because of that condition. And um, let's just say he was a very tough father. Okay, um, there, was, there was a number of incidents that had happened during the, particularly the latter end of his life uh, where he basically lost all knowledge of what, um, what his actions were um, and he had large, increasingly large spells of losing, um, uh, con not consciousness, but losing memory and losing an understanding of take, being able to be in control of his actions. So, um, and yet this was a time where his career was probably never greater. So it's very interesting that he wasn't quite conscious of what was happening. In 84, he went, there was an exhibition that had been curated by Whiston Kerno, one of the great writers and critics and curators of New Zealand, still very active today. And um, that exhibition uh, went to the Biennial of Sydney and it was in an off-site um, um, uh, area. They went, Whiston and his wife and curator, um, another curator went to the Botanical Gardens and he went into one of the bathrooms at the Botanical Gardens and disappeared um, and was found two days later. Um, in another park, Centennial Park, so if anybody knows Sydney, Botanical Diocese, you've got to cross a lot of roads to get there, uh, but he was found two days later, and because he'd been quite a celebrity, uh, somebody recognised him as being who he was and took him to St Vincent's Hospital, and uh, he really didn't recover from that incident. So it was um, very traumatic for him, but also for the whole of the Australian and New Zealand art community to have um, this incident occur, but it really reflects the kind of the, even though he had three people with him, he still couldn't remember. And what happened was he went out the wrong entrance. There was two entrances to this toilet block. What is, what is really interesting is how Colm Khan continues to inspire artists in New Zealand. Now, he went through this time, particularly when he was teaching, where he was phenomenally influential. Then there was a pushback, you know? Male, artist, modernist, 
Um, also, his personal life, you know, his, his, his alcoholism, you know, he's definitely went out of favour for a period of time with younger artists kicking against that and moving much more towards post-object art and, and, um, and conceptual art. However, there's now quite a revival because enough time has passed where his contribution as an artist is being rethought about. There's an artist called John Reynolds. I don't think he's in this collection, and I think he should be. He's a really terrific artist. And he's had a lot to do with Australian art. And he decided, as a five-year project, to explore what might have happened during that two days, those 48 hours, where McCann disappeared and he lost his connection to this world. And so this is a psychogeographic map of what might have taken place. This is a, is a tra trajectory of the distance between, um, between, uh, between the Botanical Gardens and the Centennial Park. And this is John Reynolds' mapping of everything that exists in that wider area. He embarked upon this as a five-year project. This painting is massive. This painting is about, see where that line is above the Macan and the width of this room? It's about that big. So again, you can walk in it. You can immerse yourself in this, in this world. And he stuck to a very reduced palette. Macan, um, John Reynolds isn't a painter. He works with oil stick. So he draws onto canvas, um, and the paintings were completely reduced palette, so either a magenta, a black, or this incredible Eve Klein blue. This work was acquired by Auckland Art Gallery, so uh, the last exhibition we did before I left was this work down one end, and basically um, half the rest of the gallery was Macan, with this kind of conversation happening. And this is a whole body of work that um, John Reynolds is continuing until this, until this present day, as he's exploring. Um, so this understanding, this sort of, this mythic place that Macan has within New Zealand art, but also translating that to wider circumstances and wider situations, and also setting up a very deep dialogue between Australian art history and New Zealand art history. Um, through that particular painting. He really, as I said, uh, didn't reconnect um, with... Um, in, he, he was a different person after that experience uh, and he passed away, I think, three years afterwards um, and in Auckland. And um, so... The legacy, of course, is still enormously profound. Um, both every collector's house of a certain generation in Auckland and across the country, you will see Macans. But the thing is, if you love the landscapes from central Otago, they can be on the wall. If you love the text works that are much tougher, they can be on the wall. And of course, this whole series, um, looking, looking at the lands, at, at um, the architecture, uh, and mapping space, which then links, of course, 
to what John Reynolds is doing with mapping space on a larger scale. So um, he also was a great environmentalist and so many of the series deal directly with landscape and particularly um, stories of migrating birds, which is also a thematic that um, Ralph Hotary has picked up with, in particular the Godwits. So, um, okay, that's my 30 minutes. <laughs> it's my 35 minutes. <laughs> so, um, very happy to show other images or if you are interested in any other aspect. He was also an artist that was an incredibly immediate painter. For example, there's a beautiful series. Um, see how this is just pinned to the wall? You know, that was quite radical at the time and he was very influenced again by the American artists through that process. Um, that's actually John Reynolds installing his Macam work at the Christchurch Art Gallery about 10 days ago. So just to give you a sense of the scale um, and the immediacy of this topic. Um, but we'll go out of there. And which is why I need a studio um, and, and on those canvases, you can, you can see all the lines of the timber, right? Because it impregnated, because he was slopping paint around, and it kind of, you can see all the timber behind, and in fact, some of the timber staining through. So in many of these murals, of course, they're a bit of a nightmare to restore and conserve because of, the, um, the, the, uh, of how he, he treated the materials. There was a great sense of urgency. He was a very prolific painter. Yes, Maria. Not a lot of collecting. There is some. Okay, if you're interested more about Macan, um, I'll just show you what it looks like. But um, for the duration of my time at Auckland Art Gallery for the five years, I was also on the Macan Research and Publications Trust, and there is a superb website. So um, this website has... Um, it's really the catalogue resume, and it's ongoing, and so it's literally thousands of works with all the information. And, uh, and, uh, and so you can see the provenance. He was picked up by people like Rene Block and Robert Storr, but to be honest, it didn't, it didn't broach into the collecting area. So he was passionately, New Zealand collectors love New Zealand art. Um, more, I think, than Australian collectors love Australia. You know, it's, it's very, I wouldn't say parochial, but a lot of um, a sense of identity articulated through art. 
And so he is hugely collected in New Zealand privately and publicly, not so overseas, yeah. But it was those critics, those radical critics, who picked him up and championed him um, with, uh, with showing the work, particularly in Europe, um, in Germany and in America. Yeah, um, look, she was, she, if she hadn't been married to, to um, uh, Colin, thanks for coming. <laughs> if she hadn't been married to Colin, um, you know, she may have become a much stronger artist in her own right. Uh, however, it was a tough time and maybe that wasn't going to happen, but she was a very intelligent um, and talented artist who really believed in Colin and also continued her own practice in a very domestic setting, a lot of still lives. And as I said, she collaborated with Colin on children's, children's books and artworks. Yeah, particularly grow, you know, as a mother of four children as well. So, as I said, I'm on, I was on the um, Research and Publications Trust, as was his son, as was his daughter, Victoria, um, as was his son, William. And there were a lot of stories that I don't imagine will ever be repeated that were told in those rooms. It was basically my job was a therapist for those meetings, for William to feel comfortable. He felt very comfortable with me. And so, but he also had the most amazing insights into the work and always talked about Colin in the third person. Never, never once referred to him as my father. He was, he was actually moved to another family at the age of 11. Um, and he, but he has unbelievable respect for Colin as a painter, but not as a human being. Very interesting. I know a little too much. <laughs> in relation to the dates, um, um, he never saw what, uh, Reynolds' work. Sorry? He never saw Reynolds. Oh, God, no. This is, um, Reynolds is w working in the last, you know, eight years. Yeah, yeah, no. And, um, but, but Reynolds knew him. I mean, you know, uh, John is, would be 60, 58, 60. So uh, he, he was part of his, he was someone that every artist had to fight against growing up in New Zealand, you know, this monolithic figure. Because, as I said, he was kind of like all of those artists I mentioned in one in New Zealand. Okay, I might wrap it up then. Thanks a lot for coming.